So I'm going to discuss a, a particular case that's been analysed a lot by lawyers, uh, especially constitutional lawyers, but has been neglected by normative philosophers, moral and political philosophers. Um, and I'll, I'll discuss a particular version of the case that's from the UK, but we find other versions of it elsewhere. So in uh, May 2014, uh, Mr. Gareth Lee walked into a bakery and requested for a cake with a slogan printed on the top of it saying, support gay marriage. Aye. Initially, the bakers accepted the request, but then two days later, Gareth Lee received a phone call from the vendor saying that they were unwilling to complete the order on the grounds that doing so would be inconsistent with their religious convictions. The vendors had uh, committed Catholic views. They were uh, personally opposed to gay marriage. And they regarded it as a betrayal of their values to complete this order. Initially, uh, the case was taken up by a county court in Northern Ireland who ruled in favor of the customer, Mr. Gareth Lee, on the grounds that it was wrongful discrimination uh, against the customers. That verdict was then overturned by the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, who upheld the legal right of the vendors to discriminate in this case. And crucial to their judgment was the idea that the vendors have a legal right not to be obliged to manifest beliefs that they do not hold. But not to be obliged to manifest beliefs that they do not hold. This case had been highly controversial, and it, I think it prompts discussion of a, a series of philosophical questions. The most important, I think, or most fundamental is, when, if ever, do owners of small businesses enjoy a permission to discriminate against customers or the requests that the customers make? What, if there is such a right, what grounds that right? What explains why vendors have a permission to discriminate against customers or their requests? And what are the limits of this right? What are the restrictions that we might place on the right? My aim today is to attempt to shed some light on those questions by reflecting on the conditions under which owners of small businesses may discriminate against customers <coughs> and their requests. I'll try to outline a, a moral framework for answering that question, and then by applying that moral framework to particular cases, like the case in Northern Ireland, we're going to be able to come up with the correct verdict. Now, I should note, my, my primary aim is to develop the moral framework, and it will shed light on the Northern Ireland bakery case, but, but my primary aim isn't to, to discuss that case in particular or to explain whether the Supreme Court were correct to uphold that verdict. 
think that's a, I think it's actually a very complex case, and I think that the framework that I developed helps to explain some of that complexity. So, a initial caveat before we begin. Throughout the talk, I'm going to focus on uh, small businesses rather than large commercial enterprises. So when I refer to vendors, I mean small businesses of the kind that we found in the, the, the Northern Irish bakery case. The reason for that is that I think cases of small businesses raise distinct moral considerations. They are more intimately connected to the owner's rights and their beliefs, that, and in particular, as the Supreme Court said, their right not to be obliged to manifest beliefs that they do not hold. And I think that the case of large commercial enterprises may well differ from that of small vendors. That's a controversial view, and there are going to be some people who reject that and say, no, no, all commercial enterprises rise or fall the same. But let's temporarily bracket the larger commercial enterprises. Okay. So the, the, the presentation will be structured as follows. First, I'm going to sketch a spectrum on which different views sit regarding the right to discriminate that vendors might have. I'll describe two opposing extreme views, both of which have been defended in the literature, and then, predictably and perhaps uh, disappointingly, I'm going to argue that the answer lies in between the two extreme views. I'm going to argue for a kind of hybrid view that accommodates the most powerful aspects of each of the extremes, but avoids their implausible implications. So in particular, I'm going to argue that vendors do have a right to discriminate against customers and their prerogatives and, and their requests, but that it's restricted in a number of ways. It's a, a conditional right. And in particular, I'll outline three conditions that need to be satisfied in order for vendors permissibly to discriminate against customers <coughs> on their requests. Rather than sketch those now, I'll, I'll proceed. So let's begin by, by mapping the terrain. <coughs> Here, here's one view that you might hold regarding the permissibility of uh, discrimination in these cases. It holds that vendors are always permitted to discriminate against customers or their requests, including when that discrimination is on the basis of irrational or disrespectful judgments. Suppose I were to set up a bakery and refuse to serve people born on a Wednesday. That would be an irrational form of discrimination. But, according to this view, it would be a permissible form of discrimination. Similarly, consider a bakery that refuses to serve people of a particular ethnicity or race, specifically on the grounds that the vendor believes in his or her natural moral superiority over members of that race. That would be an example of disrespectful discrimination, but again, Advocates of this view say that it's permissible. I'll call this view the, the full prerogative view. 
It says that vendors can discriminate as they see fit. Now, two clarifications are in order here. First, defenders of the full prerogative view might still believe in something like equality of opportunity. They might think, in particular, that the state has a remedial duty to compensate for the effects of private discrimination. If we allow vendors to discriminate as they see fit, and a effect of this is that, for example, men tend to enjoy many more valuable opportunities than women. That's just the way that the market plays out when we give vendors this ability to discriminate. Then perhaps the state has a duty to mitigate that disadvantage by, for example, providing tax cuts for women in order to offset the disadvantage that they would otherwise suffer from private discrimination. So according to this view, the, the full prerogative view, we allow vendors to, pro to discriminate as they see fit, and then the state responds to that in order to try to achieve something like equality of opportunity. That's the first qualification. That makes the view a little bit more palatable, I think. The second clarification is this view comes in, in two flavors. The first says um, that vendors enjoy a legal right to discriminate however they see fit, but no corresponding moral right. It says the vendor may not discriminate on disrespectful grounds, say, out of a racist convictions, at the bar of morality, that is, it would be morally wrong for them to do so, but we have principled reasons to protect their legal right to discriminate in this morally unjustifiable way. One version of the view. The second, more extreme version of the view says it's not even morally wrongful to discriminate in disrespectful ways. If the vendor refuses to serve people of a particular ethnicity, then he or she doesn't even morally wrong the person. You may be, the vendor may be subject to moral criticism or blame, but they don't morally wrong the customer. This more extreme view that discrimination is permissible at the bar of both morality and it should be at the bar of the law is defended by Peter Valentine. He defends a version of the full prerogative view. So that's one kind of extreme view you can have. Here's a rival view on the other extreme. It says, discrimination is permissible if, or let's be a bit more precise, a small vendor is permitted to discriminate against a custom, customer or their request if and only if it would be permissible for that vendor to discriminate in the same way if the vendor were a publicly owned national institution. It says, of course we want to allow commercial enterprises of some kind to discriminate against customers' requests. We want to allow hiring decisions. Those are discriminatory decisions. So we have to allow some kind of discrimination. But the moral principles that should regulate discrimination at the level of small vendors are identical 
to those that should regulate the state if it were making the same kind of decisions. This view leads to a very demanding conclusion whereby discrimination will very seldom be permissible. If you think that the state has no prerogative to discriminate as it sees fit, we shouldn't say to state officials, you're permitted to discriminate as you see fit in this narrow range of cases. Instead, we think that state officials should be given clear, directed guidelines to govern the discrimination decisions that they make. If you thought that about the state, and if you accepted that small businesses should be treated the same way as the state, then you would think that there is no prerogative to discriminate. Now, of course, you might think there are pragmatic or instrumental reasons not to prosecute small firms if they engage in discrimi immoral discrimination of this kind. But those are merely pragmatic or instrumental reasons. At the level of morality, small vendors, according to this view, have no prerogative to discriminate. So we have the full prerogative view, defended by Peter Valentine, and the no prerogative view, which has been defended by Casper Lippert Rasmussen. My view, the one for which I'll argue, is that vendors should enjoy a restricted prerogative to discriminate. That is to say, small vendors should enjoy a prerogative to, to discriminate that is lacked by the state. It makes a moral difference that this is a small private enterprise rather than a state-owned institution. In that way, I distance myself from the no prerogative view. But also, I think that this prerogative is restricted in three ways that I'll go on to explain. And these restrictions are what distance me from the full prerogative view. In the remainder of the presentation, I'll do two things. First, I'll try to establish the first of those claims, namely that there is a prerogative to discriminate that is lacked by the state, distancing myself from the no prerogative view. And then in the second part, I will elaborate on the three restrictions that I think are in place. Okay, all good? Yeah. <laughs> Great. So, when, when reasoning about the Northern Ireland case, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom pointed in particular to the right of the vendors not to be obliged to manifest beliefs they do not hold. I think there's something powerfully intuitive about there being such a right, putting aside whether it should be decisive in the particular case we're considering. So one way in which we can be obliged to manifest beliefs that we do not hold is if the state were to coerce us to manifest those beliefs. Suppose, for example, that the state were to uh, require the adoption of a particular religion. I think we would have strong principled objections to such a requirement. And part of that is that we would be required to manifest beliefs that we do not hold. But there's a second way in which we can be required to manifest those beliefs. And that is when the state empowers customers 
to make requests on vendors and denies those vendors the right to refuse. So when the state says to the vendor, you are morally required, you're legally required, sorry, to complete the order of the customer, what the state is doing is it's depriving the vendor of the right to refuse. That is one way in which, I think, the state can act so as to oblige the vendor to manifest these beliefs. Now, one way in which we can flesh out or explain this intuitive appeal is by appeal to the, the value of autonomy. We think that vendors, like all citizens, have an interest, indeed a right, in being able to freely set, revise, and pursue their own ambitions, their own conception of the good life. And we might worry about a scenario in which customers can demand of vendors that they complete orders that the vendors reject, complete values that vendors reject. I think the idea of autonomy is correct, and it does help to explain. But I think it also helps to dig deeper. The, the idea of autonomy here is somewhat vague. It's a kind of hand-waving notion. And I think it helps to pick out two deeper interests that underpin our autonomy. So the first is that we have expressionist interests. Vendors have an interest in freedom of expression, where acts of expression are those acts that signal our attitudes or our commitments to particular propositions. In addition to these expressionist interests, I think we also have <coughs> associational interests. We have interests in associating with groups or ideas or distancing ourselves from groups or ideas. So active, active association create membership of a particular group, formal or informal. And we may have reasons to, to value membership of that group or to, to disvalue and distance ourselves from that group. So fleshed out in this way, I think that what underlies the idea of autonomy here is the, is, is the fact that vendors have a, a permission, a, a moral right, to refuse to promote or associate with beliefs or values that they reject. So promote is related to our expressionist interest, we're promoting ideas, expressing our commitment to ideas. Mm -hmm. Or to associate, to, to create membership of a particular group, or to distance ourselves from a particular group. So this is the, the moral right that I think explains at least some of the cases of private discrimination that vendors have a moral prerogative to refuse to promote or associate with, with beliefs that they reject. So I think that that establishes a prima facie case grounded in expression and association for the right to discriminate. But I think we should immediately encounter and respond to, to two objections. 
So one objection goes as follows. It comes from those who say, look, there is a moral duty on each of us to uphold and sustain fair terms of social cooperation. We have a moral duty to uphold uh, a basic structure in which each individual is respected as free and equal. And you cannot appeal to your own values in order to get you off of the hook of having to discharge those moral duties. Suppose, let's just grant, for the sake of argument, as I think is true, that uh, gay marriage should be legal. Suppose that's true. Suppose also, let's grant for the sake of argument, that it's the kind of law that each of us is under a moral obligation to support. We're requi morally required to support the legalization of gay marriage. In that case, if an individual were to turn around and were to say, I would regard this as a betrayal of my values to have to support the legalization of gay marriage, then the appropriate response to that, I think, is to say, tough luck. If there's a moral obligation to support the legalization of gay marriage, then that's what's required of you, and your unease with that result doesn't get you off the moral hook. Let's grant that. Now, an individual might think, if that's true, then should we think the same of private discrimination? Should we think just as an appeal to betraying your own values can't get you off the hook of supporting the legalization of gay marriage, so too it can't get you off the hook in the case of producing a cake ice with a slogan supporting gay marriage. We should treat those cases symmetrically, you might think. I think that's an error. I think that individuals enjoy a prerogative in their personal lives that they don't enjoy when acting in public. That is, I think, or more specifically, I appeal to the familiar Rawlsian idea that principles of political morality apply to the basic structure of society and that in our private lives we enjoy a greater prerogative to act on values or reasons that would be inadmissible in the public domain. Now the Rawlsian idea of principles of justice applying only to the basic structure is a controversial one rejected famously by G.A. Cohen amongst others. But even G.A. Cohen recognizes that there is a personal prerogative in the private sphere. Even Cohen recognizes that individuals enjoy some license in private, in private decisions that they lack when it comes to public ones. So I think that even if we are required to support gay marriage at the level of legislation, as I think is true, it doesn't immediately follow that you're required to support that in your personal life, for example, by baking a cake. Ice with a slogan is support of gay marriage. So that's the first objection to the prerogative. The second objection says something like, 
as follows. If you want to avoid baking cakes supporting gay marriage, then don't become a baker. It's a very curious situation where the individuals involved, the vendors involved, choose to go into a profession that risks them having to manifest beliefs that they reject. We might think, given that baking is an avoidable career choice, they lack a complaint against being forced to manifest beliefs that they do not hold. They don't, in fact, have to manifest those beliefs. They're not forced to. They could choose to do something other than bake. I think that this objection has some merit, but I think it overemphasizes the avoidability of the activity in question. Of course, it, very few people, perhaps no one, depends upon having to bake in order to get sufficient income, in order to make ends meet, for example. But of course, the questions that we're considering apply not only to bakeries, but to small businesses and vendors more generally. So really, the question isn't, is it avoidable to become a baker? The question is, is it avoidable to set up a small business of one kind or another? And I take it that we have reasons to encourage small businesses of this kind, and that we want to regard this not as simply an avoidable option that it's easy to override, but we want to regard it as at least a significant cost if people aren't able to set up businesses for fear of having to manifest beliefs that they reject. I think there's more to say about this question of avoidability, but at least the, the version of the objection that I described I think is going to fail. So with those two objections evaluated and, in my case, rejected, now let's look at the limits of the prerogative to discriminate. So in particular, I'm going to outline three restrictions, which I call the, the reasonableness restriction, the conduct restriction, and the proportionality restriction. The reasonableness restriction refers to the fact that not all beliefs should qualify for protection under the grounds of the prerogatives that I've described. Instead, we should restrict the prerogative to discrimination on the basis of, uh, justified by appeal to, a particular set of beliefs, namely those that are consistent with the belief in the equal moral status of all individuals. So reasonableness, as Rawls defines the idea. So to, to motivate this, consider the following two cases. <laughs> So first, I'll, I'll call this one uh, racist bakers. A customer places an order for a cake to be decorated with a slogan in support of Black History Month, but the bakers refuse to complete the order on the grounds that making it would be inconsistent with their racist in convictions. Contrast that with uh, another example, which I call religious bakers. A customer places an order for a cake to be de 
decorated with a slogan, denigrating Allah. But the bakers refused to complete the order on the grounds that making it would be inconsistent with their Muslim convictions. <laughs> I'm inclined to treat these two cases very differently. Specifically, I'm much more hostile to the complaint of the bakers in the first case, where they refused to complete the order because of racist convictions, than I am in the second case, where the bakers refused to complete the order because of their reasonable religious convictions. One way we can pass this is to note that in order for vendors to enjoy a right to discriminate, it must meet a reasonableness threshold. That is, it must be consistent with the judgment that everyone, all members of the political community at least, have a status as free and equal citizens. This will rule out discrimination motivated by judgments about natural, moral superiority or inferiority. I call this a, the reasonableness restriction. Now, it bears noting that uh, not everyone accepts this restriction. Uh, Peter Valentine, who I noted earlier, defends the, the full prerogative account. He thinks that we should grant the moral prerogative even to unreasonable discrimination. Crucial to his argument is the idea that even if discrimination is disrespectful, that is motivated, for example, by racist judgments, Valentine maintains the appropriate response to this is simply to compensate the victim rather than to prohibit the conduct. He thinks that disrespect can be compensated, perhaps, by additional financial reward. And that is why we should favor merely compensating state remedial responses to disrespectful discrimination, rather than prohibiting it. I think, uh, be polite, I think this view is unpalatable. Uh, I think it relies upon a, a deeply implausible idea that uh, self-respect or, or respect in general is a kind of substitutable good that if you if someone is disrespected then you can make up for that you can make them whole again by giving them some kind of economic benefit by, by giving them money and to treat self-respect or respect in general and income as substitutable goods in this way I think is going to be deeply implausible it rests I think my, my complaint rests upon an idea that social relations have distinctive moral importance that is separate from distributive entitlements. And whilst the two may interact in interesting ways, it's a mistake to see them as completely fungible in the way that people like Valentine maintain. So one interesting feature of the reasonableness restriction is that it, or at least as I've described it, is that it suggests that discrimination can be wrongful based on uh, the request that the customer makes, rather than simply on the basis of the identity of the customer. So, so take the two cases I described a moment ago, that of racist bakers and religious bakers, 
I described the request that was being made. I told you nothing about the identities of the customer. I told you nothing about whether the customer was white or black or Muslim or Christian or atheist. What the reasonable condition does is it will impugn a wider set of conduct. So standardly, anti-discrimination law, at least in most countries, works to protect people against discrimination on the basis of some protected characteristic, their gender or their religious convictions, for example, their age. But the reasonableness restriction, as I've described it, goes beyond that. It says, in addition to the characteristic of the customer, we care about the requests that they make and whether they are being rejected on politically reasonable or unreasonable grounds. So I think that's an interesting result in a way that goes beyond how we see anti-discrimination law in practice. Now, most of the cases that I've discussed so far, the, the racist bakers and the religious bakers, I, I think are fairly clear-cut. At least my intuitions are very powerfully uh, with the religious bakers who want to refuse to bake a cake denigrating Allah, and very much against the racist bakers who refuse to bake a Black History Month cake. But I recognize that cases can be much more complex than this. So here's, a, here's an especially complicated one, I think. Uh, a customer places an order for a cake to be decorated with a slogan in support of interracial marriage. But the bakers refuse to complete the order because making it would be inconsistent with their religious beliefs. Suppose, what's more, that the baker says, we're not racist. This is just our religion that opposes us to interracial marriage. In this case, I think the appropriate response is to, to see it for what it is, which is a smokescreen for real racism. So historically, uh, the Catholic Church was opposed to interracial marriage, and it was opposed to interracial marriage on the basis of overtly racist judgments about the natural superiority of some races over others. And I think nowadays, if someone were to appeal to religion in order to refuse to bake an interracial marriage cake, I think that would be a, a very thin veneer for racist judgments. And so I think that we can fairly easily dismiss that case. But perhaps I'm wrong about this. Perhaps we have a very idiosyncratic baker who really does believe uh, in the equal moral status of all individuals, but then really does also believe that it's against their religion to bake this cake. And in this case, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to recognize it's going to be a complex matter. And I suspect what makes it complex is we're unsure of the smokescreen. We're, uns we're unsure of really whether the, what underlies this is racist convictions or not. And I think that this is a, a helpful insight because I think it helps to explain one aspect of controversy about the Northern Irish bakers case. Some people see these bakers as putting up a smokescreen for homophobia. Really, these bakers are, are just homophobic and they want to discriminate as much as they can according to their religion, against the gay couple. Whereas other people say, no, no, that this isn't a smoke screen. They are genuinely committed to this. In fact, in the Northern Ireland case, the, the bakers made sincere efforts to help the customer get the cake from elsewhere. 
And he said, no, no, I, it's important that you get the cake, it's important that you have this slogan decorated, just we personally feel uncomfortable <laughs> delivering that for you. So I think that the reasonableness restriction and whether it's a smokescreen or not is going to explain complexity about these cases. Okay, the second of the third, the second of the three restrictions. The prerogative dis to discriminate gives owners of small businesses a, a right to refuse to promote or associate themselves with beliefs that they reject. But what does it mean to promote or associate yourself with beliefs that you reject? Here's one view that I think is a non-starter. It says you have a right to refuse to causally contribute to the pursuit of values that you reject. We have a right on this causal view, we have a, a right not to be causally implicated in the narrative of an idea or a belief that we reject. I think that this causal version of the view is going to fail. So consider, uh, suppose that I owned a furniture store and a gay couple came to my furniture store and asked to buy a double bed. And I said, I'm sorry, I want not causally to contribute to the pursuit of values with which I disagree. So I refuse to serve you, to sell you a double bed. I think that would be plainly discriminatory in a way that's not true of the Ashes case. It, the, the Northern Ireland case, I think, is more complex. Even if you think the Northern Ireland case is wrong, I think the this case where I become an owner of a furniture store is more clearly wrong. So I don't think we can appeal to causal contributions. Instead, I think we need to understand promotion and association, what it means to promote or associate with ideas that we reject, uh, within the context of serving our, what I mentioned earlier, our expressionist and our associational interests. What I mean by this is, Vendors qualify for protection under this prerogative only if the activity that they're carrying out is sufficiently closely related to their expressionist and associational interests. So it makes a difference that the vendors are doing something artistic, for example, as opposed to simply selling a cake from off the shelf. It makes a difference because of our freedom of expression. Our freedom of expression is going to grant a greater license to discriminate in these cases. And it can't grant any license in, a, in the furniture store case. Freedom of expression can't possibly explain why I would be permitted to refuse to sell a double bed. Now, what counts as intimately connected to expression and association is a a complex philosophical question, I think. And it requires looking at how people interpret acts, the social context, the social meaning of acts. And I think that trying to have any hard and fast rule is going to prove implausible. That here's, a, here's a candidate that I think is going to fail. Some people have said it makes a moral difference in the, the Northern Ireland case that the bakers were asked to write on the cake support gay marriage. And the act of writing is so intimately connected to our freedom of association, our freedom of expression, that that's what distinguishes this case from the furniture case. But I don't think that can be correct. I think that 
very often people write messages and we recognize that those messages aren't attributed in any way to the person who wrote them. So suppose uh, I became a stonemason <laughs> and I went in, I was requested to write on a, on a gravestone in loving memory. And suppose that I were to refuse to do so on the grounds that I don't lovingly remember <laughs> this dead person. It would be a betrayal of my values to write in loving memory. I think that would be a silly objection. Nobody thinks that the stonemason has to be committed to the message. The stonemason is just carrying out a request ordered by someone else. So I think focusing on writing in particular is going to fail. Instead, I think we have to look to the social context. So I call this the, the, the conduct restriction. It's going to be sufficiently connected to expression or association. Final point, the, what I call the proportionality restriction. I think it makes a difference in the Northern Ireland case that Mr. Gareth Lee, the, the customer, could have gone down the road and purchased a cake from elsewhere. But what kind of difference does it make? So here's one view you could have. You could say that whenever the customer can get the good elsewhere, uh, that means that the vendor is permitted to discriminate, at least if the other two conditions are met. That is, if the reasonableness and the conduct restrictions are met. In effect, what this means is that vendors who have a monopoly would not be allowed to discriminate. There's something intuitive about that, I think. It helps to explain why large commercial enterprises might be different, because they start to resemble mon monopolies much more closely than a local bakery. So, but I think that this is vulnerable to objections. I think that uh, rather than simply granting the rights to all vendors who aren't monopolies and denying it to all vendors who are monopolies, I think instead we need a more nuanced analysis that takes into account the benefits and burdens of allowing or disallowing this activity. I'll say three brief things about this, one sentence each. First, the size of the harm suffered by the customer makes a difference. That is, it's different whether the customer is denied a cake altogether versus a case where the customer is given a cake and a stencil and some icing <laughs> and a how-to video to do it themselves. So the harm that they suffer is much less in the second one than in the first. Second, I think how marginalized the group to which the customer belongs is makes a moral difference. In the Northern Ireland case, I think it makes a moral difference that this is discrimination against a gay individual who, in this case, was, was going to purchase a cake for a pro-gay rights party in a way that I think we would be less concerned if this were discrimination against a heterosexual individual, perhaps. And finally, I think we need to look at the benefits and burdens suffered by the, the vendor. So in a world where baking is an <laughs> illustrious and sought-after profession, that each of us want to go into, 
such that being denied, effectively denied entry into this profession because of one's religious convictions is a much greater harm than a world in which baking is just one profession amongst many. Again, I think this helps to explain why, why I'm inclined to treat, for example, um, the Catholic Church and uh, the gay marriage issue, or, or female priests, for example, that looks like a rather different issue because of the centrality of the church in, in our social life compared to the non-centrality of bakeries. So I think what this suggests is that we need to ensure that in order for discrimination to be permissible, for vendors to have a prerogative to discriminate, the burden suffered by the customer need not be disproportionate to the burden suffered by the vendor. So I call that the, the proportionality restriction. Now exactly the demands of proportionality is a complex philosophical issue. Just look at the literature on just war theory and you'll get a sense of how complex it is. But I think the, the rough intuitive idea uh, is pretty clear. So that, that completes the three restrictions on the, the prerogative to discriminate. That is, there's a reasonableness restriction, a conduct restriction, and a proportionality restriction. To conclude one final note, even if in the Northern Ireland case, the theory that I've developed were to yield the result that the vendors were justified in discriminating or had the permission to discriminate against the customer and that the Supreme Court were correct to uphold the baker's legal right to discriminate in this way, those of us who are unsympathetic to the bakers still have other weapons in our arsenal. Even if we should protect the legal right of the bakers to discriminate in this case, of course it's consistent with this that we should chastise and criticise and campaign against the bakery. That is, we might enact other forms of social sanction, boycotts, for example. So in looking at the rights of the bakers legally in these cases and the restricted prerogative to, to discriminate that I've described, I don't mean to settle the issue of whether there are other responses that might be licensed in this case. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thank you.